Hey, this is Joe T, and I want to thank you for listening to episode two of Art at the Intersections, where we talk with artists who work at the intersections of art, culture, community, and social justice. And happy Black History Month, y'all. We know that we make it not just in the month of February, but 365 days a year. And on this episode, we have my mentor, Linda Paris Bailey, who's an award-winning playwright and the executive and artistic director of the Carpetbag Theater, Inc. So let's get to the conversation. I'm so happy to have you on Art at the Intersections and happy Black History Month. Thank you, Joe. That's, um, that's a good welcome. You know, we, uh, we welcome Black History Month, and yes, we know it's the shortest month of the year, but uh, um, it is a time when we reflect. And we know that we're always making black history. There's new black history, so I think it was McDonald's or somebody who had the Black History 365. Mm-hmm. Um, campaign so that's what I like to think of I'm like yes we get a month but we get the rest of the year too yeah so um so I always start off with this question um you can answer it how the spirit moves who is Linda Paris Bailey for those who don't know Ooh. so um Linda Paris Bailey is um uh, a playwright and um, an administrator, sometimes a performer. Um, but I, I think the best description of me is an ensemble um, artist. Uh, I love collaboration. I love working with other artists. Um, I subscribe to that notion that uh, we are all smarter than any individual. Um, so I like to bring something to the table and say, okay, what shall we do with this? Uh, and I, I, I find joy in that. I wanted to use this time to focus on the black theater tradition because um, I feel like that is a continuation. Um, your work is a continuation of that legacy, and I know that you have intimate uh, connections to it. So what has been um your beginnings um mm. so to speak with um the black theater tradition and the black arts movement as a whole well i think it started for me um at the point where i made two discoveries um i was in high school uh in the late 60s and um i discovered a way to contribute to the movement. Um, and I discovered that I wanted to write. Um, I think uh, I've always wanted to be a writer. I just didn't know what type of writer I wanted to be. And um, somewhere in the late 60s, when I was a, a student activist, I actually was a, a student activist in junior high school, I began to make the connection between the art that I wanted to do and the action that I wanted to take. So that discovery, and I, I credit um, uh, Free Southern Theater uh, mm. with guiding me uh, in that direction. Um, and until I actually learned about people who were doing that, um, I think that they were two separate worlds for me, mm -hmm. but I found a way to combine those two interests and passions. So, um, grew up in New York City, right? I'm a Queens girl. <laughs> I'm a Flushing High School graduate, born in Flushing High School, <laughs> born in Flushing Hospital, hospital, yeah. Huh. So... Um, what was, because many people credit the start of the black arts movement with Amiri Baraka and his founding um, of his theater in Harlem. Mm -hmm. What what was your interaction? Because when most people hear black arts movement, they normally first go to 
those big northern centers like New York City, Philadelphia, and other people um, that are located in that northeastern corridor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what you talked about um, being a young person, and so did you encounter any of those major arts institutions of the time, and how did those shape well, your um, approach? I had a very... Uh, unique experience in that I started my education at SUNY New Paltz, which is hmm. State University of New York at New Paltz, um, which, because it was so close to New York City, got a lot of advantage, but I was still uh, a young black artist in a predominantly white institution. Mm-hmm. Um, because I had some very progressive uh, advisors, um, and, and I will name one, Lancelot uh, Sunarain. Mm-hmm. Um, he gave several of us an opportunity to go to Howard for a um, semester as a mm-hmm. visiting student. And I really became active in the black arts movement in Washington, in D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, at Howard at first, and, um, you know, that was a time when there was uh, Robert Hooke's D.C. Black Repertory, you know. Mm. And uh, I was at Howard in the Ira Aldridge Theater, you know, so that that is steeped in black theater history. Um, but the, the, the rep was really how I, I kind of began to see what was possible. Uh, and to dream about having a theater um, and having an ensemble company. It's interesting because I had two different experiences in theater. I had the um, ensemble experience at New Paltz, um, and we were studying, you know, Lang and Schechner and, you know, mm-hmm. and um, uh, the kind of Grotowski and the kind of uh, movement around ensemble work at uh, at SUNY New Paltz. And then when I transferred to Howard, it was a, a completely different experience. But mm. I, I um, was very um, hmm, empowered by being at a na- uh, black institution, mm-hmm. um, working with... Uh, black artists and seeing um, how my work could be um, involved in the struggle but also a part of a body of work Mm -hmm. that was emerging at the time. So that was the background. Um, I had uh, as a uh, junior in college at Howard, I formed a street theater company that uh, got a contract with D.C. Recreation. So, you know, I was empowered as an artist to to start the kind of company that I would later be able to uh, assume leadership of. Mm. Um, so all of these things kind of provided background for me. And being at Howard and um, being in engaged in um, classes with writers and uh, uh, being in a a department that had some amazing musicians, young musicians, all of those things kind of formed my my, um, foundation, the black arts movement. So um, you mentioned Free Southern Theater and what, what did you learn from Free Southern Theater that you later, that you carry with you onto your later work? I think the first thing that I learned from Free Southern Theater is, a, is that sense of mission. You know, what is it that we are trying to do? Um, and are we engaged in a freedom movement? Hmm. Um, and I think that was what spoke to me about the Free Southern Theater. Um, because again, I, I was a student activist and, and had, um, you know, being on the picket line in New York is real different 
than mm-hmm. being on the picket line in you know Mississippi and Alabama and um, so there there's uh, an experience that um, I think takes you in a particular direction and um, I think by the time I left New York and had graduated from Howard and 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 moved south I was really prepared in terms of articulating my mission, mm. articulating um, the fact that I didn't want to do work that had already been produced and um, that there were stories that needed to be unearthed here mm. and that that was really where my heart was mm-hmm. um, in, in people's stories. Um, and I think by the time I arrived in Knoxville, I began to understand um, the different Souths, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that there was a, a uh, South that was the Mississippi Delta and that there was a South that was um, African-American Appalachian and that there was a South that was coastal North Carolina, South Carolina, mm. and that these were different experiences for people and uh, that really I think in terms of my story gathering uh, um, intrigued me um, made me think more deeply about place mm-hmm. um, so that experience really shaped the way that I worked so you mentioned Knoxville and in Knoxville, your work has been with the Carpetbag Theater. Um, talk about those beginnings with the Carpetbag Theater, because um, I feel like this, these beginning moments with the Carpetbag Theater could possibly have been what kind of set up the Linda we see now. I, I, I think that's really true. Um, when I moved to Knoxville in... Ooh, 1974, I think it was. Um, I hmm, I don't think that I knew where I wanted to be uh, uh, as an artist, physically, you know, in what space or place. And um, you know, I I was newly married. I was I was moving to a place that I didn't really know. Um. And I think what I found uh, attractive about the the place, and I've always been attracted to mountains. It's very interesting. Mm. I mean, you know, I grew up in New York City, but, um, you know, trips to any mountain, Catskills, you know, in the north, anything that, mm-hmm. that had a mountain was appealing to me. But um, when I moved to Knoxville, um, I don't think that I had really found a place for my work. Um, and as I began to get to know the mountains and the community and the um, those isolated pockets of uh, people of color, mm-hmm. that there was something familiar about that. And even though anybody who grows up in New York knows that they're, they're enclaves, there are neighborhood by neighborhood, there are ethnicity, you know, um, there are ethnic neighborhoods, Mm -hmm. and that they are, in fact, distinct, and they have a distinct culture. So when I began to learn about the culture of Appalachia, um, I saw saw that pattern. I saw that pattern of um, um, ethnic isolation, but also um, this spirit of survival, Mm. you know? And um, I was very attracted to the stories of people in Appalachia, particularly black people, people of color, and how how they managed, how they had independence, how they survived, and how they were so strong. So 
I felt very good about being here, felt very good about um, uh, people's stories here. And I had a connection mm -hmm. to those stories. So for those who don't know about the Carpetbag Theater, um, can you give like a little bit of the history and mission um, of the Carpetbag Theater? Yeah, um, most people think because I've been with the organization for 40 some odd years that I'm the founder and I'm not. Hmm. Um, the founder was W.F. Lucas, another um, uh, writer, playwright, uh, mostly short stories, but he also wrote plays and had been working in Philadelphia in the black arts movement there and uh, came down to Knoxville as a, a writer in residence at Knoxville College. Hmm. And by the time I arrived uh, four years later, um, I think that the, the struggle had kind of gotten to the founders and they really wanted to have some allies. They wanted to have some, some fresh blood. <laughs> 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 and um, uh, what happened was when I, when I was in, uh, in D.C., I had put together a, a kind of proposal for an ensemble company and that proposal was that we would do original work um, and we would uh, deal with issues that, that were current. And when I got to Knoxville um, and began to talk to the founder, W.F. Lucas, and his wife, Cleo Lucas, who was also a part of the founding organization, our missions were parallel. Our, our intentions were the same. And um, I found my home in Carpetbag, mm -hmm. and I found my intention uh, in Carpetbag. And quite frankly, um, I think that Wilmer Lucas uh, found a person who was committed enough to just turn a lot of things over to. Mm. So that is how I began with Carpetbag. And... Uh, when I look at uh, uh, succession and, and uh, as we think about that, I think I'm trying to replicate some of that, mm. some of that um, uh, engaging a person whose mission is the same, whose intention is the same. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all of that is written in our, in our um, documents about mission and, and purpose and uh, what we believe. Um, can you share what the mission statement of the Carpetbag Theater is? I, I'll put it very simply. Um, it is it is to reveal hidden stories. It is to, and this is the, the, the piece that I of often have to explain, um, not to give voice to people. People already have voice. Mm. But to give voice to the issues and dreams mm. of people. Um, and, and to do that as a part of uh, our artistic work. Um, mm. That's the mission. It, it's as simple as that. And um, we know who we do it for, which are those people who are disenfranchised. Um, and that's not just limited to African Americans and people mm -hmm. of color. It's, you know, if you live in, in Appalachia, you know that there are poor white communities, there are uh, mm -hmm. other communities of color, and we want to serve all of those populations. So it's our intention um, and, and our mission to, to serve not just African Americans, but uh, people who have been disenfranchised. And, and that based upon you know race, place, sexuality, um, ageism, mm -hmm. all of those isms that that uh, we see every day around us and are, are kind of in this struggle to help people to think differently. Mm -hmm. So, And, you know, even though um, Carpet Bag works with many different populations, I still think at the core is very centered in the black arts movement and being community responsive, because I was reading um, in the Greg Tate Reader, um, a piece he wrote when Amiri Baraka died, he was like, one of the things he did was brought 
the art down to the people. And I and I feel kind of that connection with what you just said Mm -hmm. in terms of the black arts movement being about the people. Um, And so that's interesting to hear it framed like that. But I still think it's very much rooted in that kind of um, philosophy that grounded the black arts movement in being community responsive about the people. And so it's interesting to hear how that has expanded over the years beyond just working, you know, exclusively with um, African-Americans. So, um, I mean, you know, we have stories that, that are so, I'll just use this word, untold. I mean, the history of African Americans, the history of blacks in America, is it's a dense treasure trove of stories that we have Mm. not begun to open yet. You know, I was talking to uh, Raphael Clemens, a, a former carpetbag member, and, you know, we were just talking about story ideas. And he was telling mm. me about this this African-American woman who rode her motorcycle across the country in, I think it was the 30s. And, wow. You know, we have no idea about those stories. We don't mm-hmm. know those stories yet. And um, we're just really, and, and, you know, I think we're really beginning to uncover those stories. Mm-hmm. And what do they tell us? You know, what do they tell us? They tell us that we, not only in the civil rights movement, but long before that, Mm -hmm. you know, were engaged in searching for freedom, whether it was personal freedom or a collective freedom. But, you know, we have been, we have always pushed the boundaries. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for us to believe that we were somehow uh, a passive people uh, it's just really um, it's really telling the lie of our history hmm. you know and and what we need to do is we we need to reclaim the truth and to share it with um, everyone but particularly our young people who need to hear it hmm. you know um, what always rings in my ear is, you know, I asked a young person, and I really don't know where or this happened, but it continues to ring. And they, and they say to me, I don't want to talk about black history. And I said, well, why is that? And they said, because in school, whenever we talk about black history, mm-hmm. it's about slavery. Yep. <laughs> and I said, okay, I can understand not wanting to talk about slavery, although we need to because mm-hmm. just because it's a part but i'm i'm just saying if that's all you're talking about then that is not who we are that is not you know um you don't understand the the concept of we are africans in america we're not former slaves right mm-hmm. so it is important that we uh continue to give voice to those stories uh particularly stories of struggle and triumph you know, uh, John O'Neill used to accuse me of being a cheerleader for the revolution, right? And that's, <laughs> that's, that's been in several different articles, but he did. And, you know, my response to that is, um, you know, every revolution needs a cheerleader. Mm. I mean, who is keeping the, the team um, buoyant mm. and, and responsive? And, you know, how do we move forward if we don't know these stories? How do mm-hmm. we know that we can, in fact, resist if we don't know stories of resistance? Mm. So, yeah. And I feel like uh, the part about not just their issues, but their dreams, mm. how has that um, played out in your um, playwriting and artistic practice? Mm. Because I think that's very interesting because I feel like with the black arts movement in particular, it has gotten like, since people say that it was the artistic and spiritual arm of the black power movement, you know, that comes with a certain aesthetic, that comes with a certain um, 
I don't want to say roughness, but a certain militant edge. Mm -hmm. And to me, there's a lot of contrast when I think of, about the way um, the black arts movement has been historicized. And then here, a person who is very much continuing that legacy, um, you know, into the 21st century, talk about dreams or has it always been about dreams and that part of the expression of our dreams is also an expression of those issues that we are we are transcending and trying to make sure that future generations don't have to endure so mm -hmm. I'm kind of like somewhere in between the two and wanted to know what were your thoughts about that well you know, um, the simple answer is, you know, without a vision, people perish, you know, that old. <laughs> um, but I think we have to, um, I, what, what, what you made me think of is um, uh, my, a conversation with somebody about science fiction. Mm. And, you know, you know, science fiction for the last few years, I mean, you know, Let's let's really talk about it. You know, before we didn't exist in the future, right? Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, we're we're there. I mean, Star Trek. I mean, we're there. We're kind of in the future. Octavia Butler. I, you know, we're in the future, and I I I really, I don't. You know, I'm not a reader of sci-fi, but I think it's really important. Mm. I think that that you have to be able to envision yourself. Um, as a a being that has survived and thrived in the future, mm. if you cannot see yourself there, then you I don't think you can really understand what you're working for. Mm. You know, it's like well, and I I think that many of us would find it difficult to s to articulate in 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 real terms of well, what does the future look like. You know, mm. what is it that that you see relationships being in the future? What is it that you see work being in the future? Mm. You know, if you're not dreaming about that, um, then how can you represent it? Uh, how can you be um, an artist that is forward thinking mm. without some kind of vision of the future? Um, you know, we do a lot of work about, you know, historical pieces about people and power, and mm -hmm. you know, but the questions that we raise through those pieces are really about what is it that you want to see in the future, that you want to hold on to, mm -hmm. that you want to get rid of, and how do you see yourself in that future? What is your role? Mm. What are your, you know... What are your simple joys? What did, what kind of work are you doing? I mean, um, we should be thinking about that. We should be dreaming about that, uh, because we sometimes get stuck in the in those um, things that we never thought we'd we'd see come to fruition. Mm. And then when they come into fruition, we're really surprised. But in fact, we've been dreaming about them for many years. Mm -hmm. You know. And if you look at the literature, they've been talking about it for many years. Mm -hmm. And I still say that we could not have had an African-American president or a biracial president if science fiction hadn't put us in the future. Mm. Hadn't said, look, in the future, there's a black president. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's okay. And it's, you know... And I, I think we, we underestimate the power of that, you mm -hmm. know, the power of planting those seeds in people's minds, mm. you know. And I think what's resonating with me the most is how when our artistic practices begin to imagine, and Sean Crawley has put this phrase in my mind, and it's sticking so it's in the forefront of my mind so much right now, these otherwise possibilities, you know, that art can, you know, I feel like responsible art does 
in putting these otherwise possibilities out, you know, leads to the cultural shifts. And so um, I want to take a pivot um, and then I'll pivot back to carpet bag. Um, But how do you see art, you know, especially, um, you know, being involved in continuing the tradition of the black arts movement? What is your ideas about how art um, leads to these social um, justice aims that, you know, we are all fighting for? Um, Mm -hmm. And so I guess another way to phrase it is, what is the link between art and political community organizing? Mm -hmm. Okay. I think that good art raises the personal to the level where people can see it in relationship to the political. Hmm. Um, One of the things that I was was reading was, uh, I think it was a Dr. King speech, we can't change people's minds, Mm -hmm. but we can change their hearts. I mean, that, that, that wasn't necessarily the way that I was thinking about it, but it also opened me up to really think about um, how art impacts people. Mm-hmm. Um, it is like planting that, not, not so much the change seed, but the seed that says, um, this is different than what I thought. Mm-hmm. This is different than what I thought. So now that I know it's different from what I thought, how do I respond? Mm. Um, And I think that um, art opens that door to to people and says, oh, okay, Um, I have to accept that this is different from what I thought. And does that cause a major shift politically? Uh, I think it causes a shift over time Mm -hmm. because it's like that thought that won't let you go. It won't won't remove itself from your mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, Does that mean that you won't vote for idiots? No. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, I do think that there is that shift. And... um, that in combination with um, political action, because it's not a replacement for political action. Mm-hmm. It's the alliance of that and the political action mm-hmm. uh, are what make the art, or what makes the art powerful. Hmm. Um, but you can't, you know, you can't provide an alternative to what people have experienced and seen in a particular way without providing them a, a, an opportunity for, for, for concrete change. And I think that's mm. where the alliance of art and social action really comes in. Mm. Um, you have to give people a way of making change once you've suggested that, that they might want to. Mm-hmm. Right, so if we can, as artists, suggest that they might want to, and then connect them with people who actually can enact the change, mm-hmm. then that's a powerful movement. Mm. So. so, pivoting back to the carpetbag theater, mm-hmm. um, how did the name come about? Because mm. I'm, I've. I've always found it interesting people's reactions um, to the name. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, because there may be a lot of people listening who, you know, have no idea that the Carpetbag Theater exists and may be wondering, Carpetbag. So can you tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about that? I can. Um, and, and this is the way I describe it now, because you have to understand that I was not one of the founding members, mm-hmm. and uh, probably at that time in my in my uh, artistic life, I would not have named it the Garbage Bag Theater. Mm-hmm. But there is, um, 
I think in the name, um, a way to instigate a conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think the founding mothers and fathers uh, having this discussion about a name for the theater um, began a discussion that got real deep. Mm -hmm. And it got deep about point of view, mm. and it got deep about um, the experience of the other, um, and it got deep about reconstruction. Mm. And what happened was that the, you know, it started out as a kind of joke, and then people delved into what it really meant in terms of an African-American perspective to, um, to have um, that history about the quote-unquote carpetbaggers and to think who about... Who were the carpetbaggers, just so we can... Well, if you look in the dictionary, it, you know, it says a group of um, you know, uh, greedy northerners who came down to the south to suck everything dry out of the south. But, um, you know, our history is, is a little different. You know, uh, if you have a group of people that are, that whose real mission is to redistribute land and wealth, mm. um, they, might, they might not be your enemy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you're a slave or an ex-slave, mm -hmm. and that, you know, that point of view may be different for you as an African-American. And this discussion about um, reconstruction, really, is what is, I think, key to, to the name carpet bag, not carpet baggers, but mm -hmm. carpet bag, to understanding the differences, particularly in the South, between the black experience and the white experience. Mm -hmm. So the the name itself always stimulates this conversation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I remember sitting in a meeting and uh, with people who I, you know, assumed to be very progressive. And, uh, you know, someone started talking about uh, Gone with the Wind being their favorite movie. <laughs> and I said, oh, <laughs> explicative, explicative. <laughs> I was like, that's not my favorite movie. Uh -huh. And I don't really get that point of view. <laughs> um, so, you know, maybe we should really talk about the different experience of, of, of being black in the South and mm -hmm. being, you know, um, and, and different people's romanticized notions about mm -hmm. everything Southern. So um, we try to we try to use it, and I try to describe it as uh, as uh, the name of the instigators, mm. and um, try to think about how we can, you know, you know, talk about reconstruction and uh, talk about, you know, if you will, reparations, and you know, um, um, oh, there's one more word that is eluding me right now, but I'm just saying that um, we have to look at everything from a particular point of view. I mean, that's that's how all art is political. It's because of the point of view mm. of the person that is um, sharing the art. Mm -hmm. So, um, what have been some of the ways that Carpetbag has worked um, over what forty, what seven years? Seven years now. Yeah. Um, so how? What are some of the things that Carpet Bag um, has done and institutionalizes Carpet Bag ways of doing things? Because I'm forty-seven years is a long time um, mm -hmm. to be using art for social change and social justice. So what are, what are some of the methodologies that Carpetbag uses 
um, in ways that they ensure that when you receive people's stories that you know they're not abused because we know that mm-hmm. that has happened you know when we go back to that young person's story because that is definitely my story as well and you know growing up in Knoxville Tennessee going to a school in the county and not the city I was the only person in my U.S. history class and I was asked to read <laughs> the infamous paragraph you know right, on, and on so <laughs> yeah on the on slavery, on slavery Rosa Parks and Dr. King that's mm-hmm. like the mm-hmm. <laughs> the trinity if you will that public schools <laughs> oftentimes give young people and so I feel like there's a way that when people entrust their stories their cultural practices all of those things that are near and core to who we are as people that there can be ways that that's done in a way that's harmful mm-hmm. than good mm-hmm. um and so what what are some of the ways that Carpetbag has done this work but have also ensured that people's stories are treated with care and um, respect? Mm. Well, I, th- I think um, our story gathering process is a part of our aesthetic. Mm. Um, and that, you know, the people and communities that we gather stories from, they are the experts. Um, and we we think of the work that we do as gathering those stories and returning those stories to those mm-hmm. communities. Um, you know, I I really uh, love this this idea of reframing that mm-hmm. people are. And you know, Joe Carson was talking about it long before everybody was like, "Oh, we're going to be reframing." It was like. Um, we talked about that like 15 years ago, okay? <laughs> so, um, but it is, uh, what we try to do is we try to help communities from which we gather the stories to 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 assign meaning hmm. to the stories and and not just to share the story, but what does it mean in the context of uh, a community's move towards freedom and liberation, towards economic justice, hmm. towards um, the the desires that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, and we try not only to gather, then uh, reframe, but also to make sure that when these productions are completed, that there is a, there is a response from that community that we... Hmm. You know, we we are accountable to to that community and and try to go back and question whether or not we created a meaningful story. Did mm-hmm. we get it right? Did we, you know, um, is this what the story tells you? This is what the story told us, mm-hmm. right? Because we, as artists, uh, this is our interpretation. But is this the story that you want to tell? That that's that that shares the point of view that you have mm. about its meaning. Um, so we, we, we try to, you know, to return to the communities that we're, we're gathering stories from and to see. Um, mm. And I think the, the, I think one of the profound experiences that I, that I had uh, or two one was with the environmental justice festival and mm-hmm. and nothing nice you know and um we worked with uh young americorps workers and we went mm-hmm. on site with them to you know the various places they were working uh, recycling and and um uh remediation and lead paints and um and when we performed in new orleans you know we invited them to come and we invited them to to see if the story reflected, you know, who they saw themselves as, and 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 uh, we always try to gather that in terms of feedback when we when we do tell a story, um, and you know that is a that is a constant with Speed Killed My Cousin. You know, it's a story, mm-hmm. and we do workshops with the Car Project. But um, can you tell us what these things are? 
Um, what is Speed Killed My Cousin? Well, Speed Killed My Cousin is a piece about an African-American a woman soldier, veteran of the Iraq War, and her struggles with suicidal tendencies, um, um, ideation, um, mm -hmm. her struggles with moral injury, and um, uh, military sexual assault. Hmm. And um, we go with her on this ride down the quote-unquote LIE, Long Island Expressway. <laughs> Um, as she if decides, you're from New York. if you're from New York, <laughs> <laughs> if and she's trying to decide whether or not she w sees that she um, feels that she has to take her own life. I mean, hmm. um, and the story centers around uh, what we learned. Uh, from the veteran community and psychologist uh, is moral injury. Hmm. Um, she did things in Iraq that she has a tremendous guilt about hmm. and um, that guilt is driving uh, those suicidal hmm. uh, ideations. And um, we tell that story not just because it's about um, uh, PTS or PTSD, depending on who you're talking to, but because we understand that it impacts her, we understand that it impacts her community and family, we understand that it's an intergenerational conversation mm. about war, because her father's generation served in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. So we are trying to kind of unpack a lot of information mm -hmm. that many of us in the African-American community have been a part of or carry on or carry within us. Mm -hmm. So that story really um, seeks to open up a community dialogue about a war which is somewhere over there mm -hmm. uh, from the perspective of a generation where war was right in your face mm -hmm. every day. Mm. Um, and so you mentioned the car project. Where does that fit in with the play? Well, we, we I knew <laughs> that the play was um, not in itself an adequate response. Mm -hmm. So we began to think of ways that we might be able to uh, serve the veterans community, particularly those who've been um, damaged psychologically by, by war experience. And we know everybody is, but to the degree where um, they were no longer able to function in, in, in society. Um, and we knew we wanted to bring these issues um, before the public, but also to allow veterans to have voice. Mm -hmm. um, so the CAR project, Creative Arts Reintegration Project, and I know reintegration is on its way out as a term, but... Um, we were working with uh, veterans and trying to, through theater arts, through workshops, help them share their own story. Mm. Um, and in a non-therapeutic um, way, mm -hmm. um, the therapist's intention in terms of uh, the story is different from our intention in terms of the story. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we, we, th we really thought it was important to also be a presence as an organization of color in the veterans community. We know, particularly for women, 
mm. that um, you know we hold almost or maybe a majority of um, of the population, um, and our stories were not being told. Our being the woman veteran stories. Mm-hmm. So the piece in following a woman veteran really uh, tries to go into that experience and to um, help in recovery by that reframing of the story. And I've often heard you talk about the methodology of carpet bag and kind of like a triad here, interpret, reimagine. Um, and you said that there's an ongoing um, accountability in you know, this ongoing thing of making sure that you've gotten the perspective right of the communities you enter, be it veteran community, you know, the various um, geographical communities. Mm -hmm. Um, How is that um, process of feedback and integration um, incorporated? Is Is it a part of the creative process in that you you know, get down to a first draft of the script, you know, do the works in progress, Mm -hmm. showing, reading, which um, I was fortunate enough to be around for during the development of speed. Um, So is that integration of feedback done through the creative process? Um, And when you reach like a final, is there ever... Is there ever a final (laughs) if you're, you know, working with communities and their stories and incorporating that feedback? Well, and and that's a really good question because I don't think there ever is a final. But Mm. we also have to understand the limitations of us as a a touring company. Mm -hmm. So the intention of CAR is to um, leave tools within the community Mm -hmm. that we've engaged in and um, leave tools that can be built upon by that community. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, to come away with a process that mm-hmm. does not require our presence, mm-hmm. right? So um, we work with people who are doing existing programs Mm-hmm. And and say um, this might be an element that you you know digital storytelling uh, might be an element uh, the the physical exercises might be an element element that you want to incorporate. Mm-hmm. But if we are not sharing those those tools, mm-hmm. then we are not completing or furthering. I won't say completing. We're not furthering our mission. Mm-hmm. So that the CAR program is designed to do that. Mm. Um, when we do the audio digital stories, those are physical, tangible things that people can have and they can hold on to. Um, and I've heard about um, uh, an app um, that you know kind of uh, reviews a person's story on, on their own cell phone. Mm. which may help them during, you know, times of of stress and trauma. Mm. So we are doing a research project, a pilot research project. Um, We're one of the collaborators in Tampa. Mm -hmm. Um, And to look at um, how this process works, where it doesn't, um, and to to kind of rethink uh, our process or, or find out, how the process benefits mm-hmm. um, others. So we're engaged in that research right now. Mm. And, um, you know, I think that, again, is a part of this ongoing process of mm-hmm. engagement. And we never think of it as a, um, a process that ends. It's a process that, that begins and we may not participate in Mm-hmm. you know, as it goes forward. But um, we have kind of been instigators there, too. And, mm. I mean, instigators in the positive sense, not the negative. Mm. And just lastly, to wrap up, because um, 
we've just been on a roll from one thing to the <laughs> next thing to the next thing. Um, but in this new, what people are calling this new movement for black lives, you know, mm. that came about as a response to um, the extrajudicial killings of unarmed black men and women. Um, what do you think the black theater tradition and the black arts movement what is that enduring legacy that can speak to this current political moment that we find ourselves in and even that we will step into you know are stepping into rather um, with this new presidency well I, I think uh, there are two things one is that the continuing role of uh, exposure and resistance mm -hmm. uh, in the art. Mm -hmm. um, and I also think that just as the movement is creating new forms of protest but still anchoring in some of the very old forms of protest, I mean, mm -hmm when uh, we were looking at the demonstrations after Trump, quote unquote, uh, won the election. <laughs> um, you know, I think th you're seeing something that's, that's quite old. Mm -hmm. But um, when I look at what Black Lives Matters is doing in terms of decentralizing and using social media and those kinds of things, mm -hmm. that those, um, are the new kind of element and component of this movement. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot that can be done uh, with the black arts movement in terms of engaging uh, through social media. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think, uh, and it's not a but, it's a yes and. Mm -hmm. We are still storytellers. Mm. And that... Um, we still need to share those stories that that uh, are 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 hidden by the lack of broad media and hmm. and in spite of the um, the very the very activity of social media. Um, and we see things that that both um, support our position. We see things uh, that repel us. Mm -hmm. We see things that um, throw us into depression. Um, so all of this is out there. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that what the arts can do is to perhaps take some of that and shape it into a narrative that we need. Hmm. Well, um, thank you for joining um, me on Art at the Intersections. I really do appreciate your over an hour <laughs> of wisdom giving. And I hope that the artists and cultural workers who hear this will grab a hold um, to at least one of the nuggets and pearls that you dropped um, in this over an hour of us chatting. Um, and I want to let the listeners know that if you are near um, Knoxville in East Tennessee, that you should check out their 50th anniversary celebration series where they are remounting two shows a year through 2019, which is Carpetbag Theater's 50th anniversary. Um, and you can connect with Carpetbag through their Facebook page, Carpetbag Theater, um, their website, carpetbagtheater.org, or on Twitter, um, Carpetbag Inc., um, to follow them to get all of this new information. Um, Speed Coat, my cousin, is also on tour. Um, so check them out because um, these stories are worth hearing. Um, and you may have a favorite play of Carpet Bag that you haven't seen in a long time. So now would be the time to see those and um, congratulate Linda and the Carpet Bag Theater on telling those hidden stories for 47 years. And 
in 2019, 50 years. Thank you again. Thank you. And um, it was a pleasure uh, to talk with you and respond to some well-articulated questions. So thank you. Oh, thank you. I want to send a heartfelt thank you to Linda Paris Bailey for joining us today and thank you for listening. And I hope you join us next month right here for more talk about art at the intersections. Take care.